Good evening. It is officially 7 o'clock St. Peter's time, which is about 7.05 uh, Eastern Standard Time. But again, it's great to have everyone here this evening. We are excited to have our second of the first Tuesday conversations with Dr. Patricia Markham Grissica, who I know as Patty. Mm -hmm. um, Dr. Riska has been invaluable to this congregation over the last three years as she has uh, offered her expertise in public health in advising St. Peter's on our protocols to keep everyone safe during the pandemic. And thanks to her assistance and advice, we have had a stellar three years without any instances of um, outbreak of um, COVID here at St. Peter's. So <laughs> that goes to show that she knows what she's talking about, and we've done well. Um, Dr. Riska has a DRPH, a doctorate in public health. She is part of the Brown School of Public Health and also holds a bachelor's degree in nutrition. Uh, she is married to another Dr. Rissica, also now <laughs> lovely as an ENT, Dr. Bob Rissica, and is the mother of the future, <laughs> and is the mother of the future Dr. Rissica, who on Thursday will be defending her doctorate in chemistry. So uh, there, I thanked her, I thought we might have a singing group going here, but um, the Dr. Rissica. Um, but she's the mother of two children, and um, she is gonna, talk more about how she got to this point. But Patty, welcome and thank you for um, being here and presenting this evening. Thanks, thanks Craig. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me this evening. Um, I will just kick us right off. So what I'm gonna talk about this evening, I'm gonna start off by talking a little bit about how I got here, how I got to um, this position um, professionally. Um, I'm also going to then talk about, you know, this, this title, which is taking care of everybody, right? So talking, I'm going to talk about the history of public health, first in ancient history, then in more modern, in terms of more modern public health, where did public health come from? Um, does it work? Uh, and then I'm going to talk a little bit about um, the biblical possibly support for public health, or we can talk about that and see if that, if that makes sense or, or not to you, um, as that is not my area of expertise, but it is something that's of interest to me. If you can't hear me at any point, please let me know. Um, I have a pretty good playground voice. I don't wanna shout at everyone, but um, please do let me know. And I'm used to um, you know, using a loud voice when I teach. So um, what is public health, right? So public health, this is the American Public Health Association definition, right? Public health promotes and protects the health of people in the communities where they live, learn, work, and play, right? So while a doctor treats people who are sick, generally one patient at a time, right? Uh, those of us working in public health try to prevent people from getting sick, or injured in the first place. We also promote wellness by encouraging healthy behaviors. So it's different than medicine, although medicine arguably is part of public health. It's just one piece of a whole spectrum of prevention and really thinking about the whole community. So what about the history? Where does it come from? So you might be a little scared. I'm gonna actually start with the history of the world. I promise I'll go quickly and not kill you with, um, <laughs> with history. But it, I wanna put in perspective where public health has come in. Uh, so to start off with, four and a half billion years ago, uh, the Earth was formed. Three billion years ago, the first organisms were found on the planet. Two and a half, or I'm sorry, 210 million years ago were the first mam mammals. So quite a bit after, after organisms, um, tiny creatures, right? And then uh, 145 million years ago, dinosaurs and many small mammals were around the world. And then 65 million years ago, it is estimated, an asteroid hit, dinosaurs are wiped out, but after the dinosaurs were gone, there was a great diversity of mammals produced after that time. And that's where we come in, 
right? So at 55 million years ago, so a mere 10 million years later, right? The first primates are estimated to have been uh, identified. Then somewhere around 2.4 to 1.4 million years ago, the first humans were uh, walking the Earth. About 600,000 years ago, so again, a small fraction, that was the time of the Neanderthals and the Denisovan, De Denisovans. Of course, this isn't my area, so I don't know how to pronounce it very well. Um, around 40,000 to 90,000 years ago is when creativity and cooperation among one another started to happen. So this is really the beginning of community. 10,000 years ago, it is estimated that humans at that point were pretty much hunter-gatherers. So really focusing on literally hunting, hunting and gathering for food. And in that time period, humans lived in small groups um, and traveled in small groups. And there's a fabulous article on the self-selection toward domestication. So humans became domesticated, if you will, by selecting into more peaceful um, way of coexisting with one another and sharing of resources. And believe it or not, there's a genetic connection to that, which I find fascinating. Um, and, and humans started to transition into farming, so actually domesticating plants, right? And uh, for their food instead of hunting and gathering for everything. So I will not go through all of this, but I do want to point out over the 10,000 years prior to now, so this is 8,000 years prior to the time of Christ, right? 10,000 years, there was a lot of dom domestication of different types of food products. So wheat, potatoes, um, chickens for, for meat and eggs. Um, uh, cattle actually was about 10,000 years ago. And then also the earliest mining of metal. So very interesting, that was pretty early on. But notice that 7,900 uh, uh, years ago, roughly, was the earliest grape wine production. Not sure it was grape wine, but it was in fact wine production a really long time ago. And pretty soon after that, 7,600 years ago, was the first known opium production. So we think of drug issues as being sort of a, a modern problem that you know, are a, a big problem in our society, but they have been around for a really, really long time. Um, and then 7,500 years prior to now was the first known civilization, which is very, very fascinating, right? This is where people actually gathered in bigger than small groups. And again, thinking of population-wise rather than just individual people making individual decisions. Um, and then uh, uh, tobacco was domesticated at roughly 7,000 years ago. Um, the, in yellow, I've highlighted some of the findings that are in fact related to public health. For example, um, roughly 5,500 years ago, there was a rise in human fertility related to babies being weaned from their mother's breast and fed the milk from other animals. Very interesting, and weaning from the breast increases fertility among women. Um, also, the earliest evidence of plague. So plague or big infectious diseases that wiped out quite a few people were happening then. Um, and then even 3,850 years ago, it is estimated um, the first re uh, record of contraception. So separating um, sexual activities from reproduction. I'm not sure how they figured that out, but that is what is um, uh, identified in um, anthropology. Um, and again, continuing to domesticate different types of um, food products and domestication of horses, which is near and dear to my heart, um, and, and starting to have differences in society, right? So early governance systems and the early code of law, and even, I love this, the earliest re record of joyful, uninhibited celebration by ordinary people, not just the higher-ups in society, but ordinary people. That's kind of amazing that humans existed for that long where ordinary people weren't, weren't found to have joyful celebration. So, 
Then moving into a little bit uh, closer in time, 2,600 years ago, so this is 600 years before Christ, there is an actual description, right, by a specific Egyptian of the diagnosis and treatment of 200 diseases. So medicine was well on its way at that point. Um, and, and 55, uh, 500, one, one more time, 25, 50 years ago, the first training in surgery and anatomy was described. That's pretty fascinating, right? 500 years, more than 500 years before Christ. Um, and also the earliest inpatient hospitals and really thinking of professionals taking care of humans was occurring. Pretty amazing. So all of this before the birth and death of Jesus Christ. So when we think about public health, a lot of health-related activities were already happening even before Christ's time. And then around the time of Christ, a little bit before and a little bit after, so just before um, uh, uh, Christ's time, the Silk Roads were known to be developed, and this is land travel between Europe and Asia. And then a little bit after, about 100 years after, sea travel between ancient Rome, Africa, India, and China was, was happening. So a lot of travel was happening, and truly the very beginnings of globalization, and likely the beginnings of also changing and sharing disease risk was, was happening there too. And also at uh, about that time, about 150 AD, the earliest industrial complex, which was uh, water mills in southern France, um, produced hardtack, which was uh, a hard food substance for, for sailors that was um, non-perishable, could, could be taken on ships. So that was also the beginning of industry. Um, and again, I, I, I had to throw in the first hospice was identified in, in 1050, and the um, discovery of, uh, and art, of eyeglasses in 1286. So who knew, right? That's thankful. I'm very thankful for those. And of course, a lot of the development was probably only available to the very wealthy, right? It's very likely that anyone without means or who wasn't a landowner or whatever had, had little access to any of this. But, but the, um, the seeds of health and health care were already happening um, around that time. So again, going back to public health, this all comes back to the differences between taking care of one individual at a time and really taking care of a whole community or taking care of everybody, right? So I go back to this um, definition because I want to make that point very clear that public health is about the health of people and the health of communities. It's really about everyone. And also, um, a lot more about prevention and promoting wellness than other, other parts of healthcare. So how does it start? So this is the legend. This is the public health legend that all of us who uh, go to school in public health are, are taught this legend. Um, I think most of it's true. I can't swear to every detail, but um, it starts with clean water. And, and that makes sense, right? That's the beginning of modern public health. All right, so it goes like this. There's a cholera outbreak in London in 1854. Cholera is pretty bad diarrheal disease, pretty deadly. Um, it's in the Broad Street area, um, which is serviced by the Broad Street pump. This is the pump, and literally, this is a representation of the pump that is still in London today. And there's a cesspool nearby. This is not good. Right? Well, we think it's not good, but at that time, John Snow is the name of the physician who identified that cesspool near the water pump might be an issue. And the pump was shut down. Legend has it that John Snow took the handle off the pump, and that removal of the pump was associated with the abatement of the cholera, cholera outbreak. Um, in our own Rhode Island Department of Health uh, office building, uh, on the fourth floor, there's a conference room uh, next to the 
director's office, and in that office is a shadow frame of a pump handle. And you know, everybody who works in that building, who went to school in public health, we all know that that's a representation of Jon Snow's pump handle. But that's the beginning, right? So clean water is, is really the origin of public health. And it makes sense. So in the 16th through 19th century, sanitation practices were starting, right? Sorry, this is a little icky, but it is what it is, right? Pale closets, outhouses, and cesspools were, were starting to be used. But by the 19th through 20th century, it is called the sanitation revolution. Who knew, right? Really big deal. Latrines, personal toilets, and plumbing. Really big deal. So truly moving infectious agents away from water sources and food sources and um, it, from infecting people. And then also, of course, since then, we've had water purification systems and the move of garbage to go along with um, uh, sewage removal. Um, after, or really not even after, during this same time period, um, the understanding of infectious agents and how they work and, uh, and how vaccines might be developed to as a preventative agent started happening. So this started out with the observation of bacteria very early on. Um, I should have a date next to that, but it was, it was before 910, so literally 910 years um, AD, um, raises identified smallpox. So this is an infectious agent that was around for a really long time, like a thousand years, very long time. And on the right, the picture is the picture of a person with smallpox. So this isn't like one or two spots. This is a really nasty um, infection. So in 1683, uh, Leuven Hook observed bacteria for the first time. 1701, uh, the first inoculation for smallpox happened. So this was a very interesting thing. This is before really an understanding of exactly what they were looking at, exactly what was happening. And it was based on uh, young uh, uh, milkmaids having been exposed to, uh, to milk, and the milkmaids had beautiful faces without the pox, and others actually had the pox. And so they were able to um, expose people to some of the uh, uh, to the milk, but also then later identified um, uh, uh, exposing them to a piece essentially of the infection allowed them to not, uh, to not become infected. So it was before really understanding what that was, right? So the microscope wasn't even invented, right, until 1790. And then in 1796, Edward Jenner develops the process for vaccination for smallpox. So Again, the inoculation was happening 95 years before that, but they didn't really know what they were doing. The vaccine was developed after that, and the specifics for the vaccine were developed after that. And then, again, all of this is before Louis Pasteur in 1857 developed the germ, germ theory, really, which was saying that bacteria, these little things that we're seeing with this microscope, are in fact responsible for disease transmission. So just fascinating how all of this was happening at the same time. And remember, I said the cholera outbreak happening in London, which was the Jon Snow moment, right, was 1854. So all of this was happening in the background and the, um, uh, the physician Jon Snow, you know, kind of put two and two together. Right after that, there was just a big, uh, uh, development boom, right? So it was really kind of one after the other um, over the next um, 70 years or so, development of um, different vaccines. And then you can see way down here in the purple that antibiotics were first developed in 1928. So this was some of the very first technology, um, the, the vaccine development, some of the first technology to really offer population-wide um, uh, prevention for uh, infectious disease. And for such a wide 
variety of diseases. You can see cholera, anthrax, rabies, typhoid, bubonic plague, uh, diphtheria, whooping cough, right? We're still getting vaccinated for some of those. Children are. Polio, not till 1952, and measles, not till 1964. So that, that's pretty recent. All right, so vaccinations you've heard about, and I'm going to talk a little bit more about how well they worked later, but I'm going to move on to talking about nutrition near and dear to my heart. But also, because nutrition was right after clean water in terms of being the foundation for public health. And in fact, in ju just after the turn of the um, uh, 20th century, uh, there were questions about okay, the infectious diseases are getting better because we have vaccines and we um, have some idea where this is coming from, cleanliness, right, hygiene is happening, but what about scurvy, beriberi, rickets, pellagra, these aren't going anywhere. There's nothing happening. There's no, it seems like, infectious agents. So there were questions about, about some of these diseases, which you're probably thinking, really, were a lot of people suffering from beriberi, but actually there were, in fact, there were absolutely um, people suffering from these diseases, and especially rickets, you could see in children's legs. So um, in 1906, uh, Frederick Gowland Hopkins articulated what is called the vitamin theory. So he was the first person to say it out loud. Others had, had talked about it. But essentially, that um, a human cannot live just on protein, carbohydrate, fat, water, and salt. There's something missing. And when they tried to feed infants, with formulas like that under certain circumstances, like a siege during a war, and they had to try to put something together to feed babies. Um, it didn't work. The babies did not thrive. They did very poorly. Um, and so uh, uh, this other person, Nikolai uh, Lunin, came to the same conclusion with mice, that they could not feed um, with, there's something missing. We don't know what it is. Something's missing. They're not doing well. We think we know everything, we don't know everything, right? That's one of those moments which happens, frankly, a lot in science. So it wasn't till 1912 that uh, uh, Casimir Funk coined the term vitamin, um, which was the actual term, right? Became vitamin for what these mysterious substances were. And again, as soon as they figure that out, then there's a, a, a long, um, or, or maybe not so long, but um, a flurry of activity in identifying these um, different substances. So vitamin A was one of the first, um, and thiamine, vitamin C, vitamin D, niacin, all through from 1913 to the mid-30s, um, which, which is amazingly recent to me. As a dietitian. that's phenomenal to me, that this was less than 100 years ago in some cases, that these um, substance were, substances were just being identified. And truly, the first dietary allowances uh, uh, document was developed in 1943. The first dietary guidelines was in the 1970s. And the very first dietary guidelines for America, which is uh, <laughs> DGA is, is something that um, dietitians read um, often, and we, we know when they come out. That one came out in 1980, so I literally studied that exact document when I was in school, as Bob reminded me, because I'm old. That's why. So, <laughs> so the, the, what was happening then is with the development of vaccines and understanding about infectious disease, um, there was a transition happening. And it was generally happening in wealthier parts of, of the world, parts of the world that had more development, right? So as income increased in different countries um, and development happened, uh, the scarcity became excess. And diseases went from infectious diseases to more of uh, chronic diseases, like hypertension and cancer and cardiovascular disease and diabetes. So those became much more prominent as the life expectancy increased and people were no longer dying of infectious diseases. So that's sort of the history of public health. And, and as it stands now, public health, again, caring for our community, caring for everyone, really takes the form of 
defining a problem, which can be any number of things. It could be um, uh, an injury, it can be um, a disease, it can be any, any number of things, right? Identify the risk and protective factors, develop and test prevention strategies, and then um, once a prevention strategy is developed and tested and shown to be effective, assuring adoption, widespread adoption. So does it work, right? What has public health accomplished? So I'm just gonna give a little tiny snapshot of what happens with the population if some of these methods are used. So let me start with deaths associated with childbirth, maternal mortality, which if you look at these numbers, this is really crazy. In the 1930s, right, we're talking six, seven, 800 women out of 100,000 births, almost one out of 100 would die in and around the time of delivery. So it can be during pregnancy, during delivery, or within uh, a few months after. But there was a sharp drop, right? I mean, this went from 9,800 average uh, in 1841 to 1846, which was you know, before, this, before this graph, um, down to 1,270, which is way lower in 1948 is the estimate. So why do you think? Why was there such a drop? The way we ate. Mm, no. Nice try, but <laughs> um, nutrition. I would love that to be the answer, but it is not. Sterile delivery. Sterile delivery? From the peanut gallery in the back, doctors washing hands. It was hygiene and again, infectious disease. So sterile delivery was actually correct too because it was when the practice of washing hands before delivery became uh, prominent and standard practice and maternal mortality dropped precipitously, just really dropped right off. And then if we look at infectious diseases like smallpox, which again, you know, has existed for a very long time. You can see here when the first vaccine was used in Boston, the number of deaths, and this is the death rate, dropped really, really significantly as the vaccine was starting to be used. And then if you look worldwide at smallpox, this was a time period when identifying a new case of smallpox was associated with um, immediately a team from the World Health Organization going, identifying who's been exposed, isolating. So this is where some of our practices of quarantine and isolate um, a person who is infected, quarantine people who have been exposed, um, and, and then vaccinating everyone um, helped to create this situation, which is uh, from 1920 through the 60s, we were up and down, and then with this team's effort, um, smallpox went to zero worldwide. It's the only infectious disease that has been eradicated worldwide, literally not a case since 1978. So, oops, did I skip one? Boop, boop, boop. And then polio, I'm sure many of you remember a time when polio, um, I, you know, I got vaccinated for, for polio. And at the time when the polio vaccine became available, uh, the number of infections dropped dramatically. And really as that, you know, again, you have to also get the vaccine out in order for it to be effective. And then measles also, again, the, the vaccine wasn't developed until 1964. Um, and so this graph starts 1980, which is, you know, fairly recent, honestly, um, but showing um, the top line, that blue line, is a mass vaccination, vaccination campaign in the Americas. And then the other line, the red line, is um, a, a different type of vaccine and a vaccination campaign more worldwide. So again, as the um, vaccination became more readily available around the world, the number of cases dropped dramatically. And then, of course, we have information about COVID. And these lines show differences in um, death rate. The red line is the death rate 
Um, and then again, that's from September 25th, 2021 through April 2nd of this year, very recent, um, shows the death rate for people who are completely not vaccinated. The middle line is those who are partially vaccinated and the lowest line is the death rate for people who are vaccinated. So it seems to work. But what else besides infectious disease? Because I've talked a lot about that. How about car safety, right? This is something that happens at the level of policy telling car makers what they can do with their cars, right? And what has to be done. And there are many different things that have happened. So this graph starts in 1960 and goes through 2020. And you can see the drop in um, automobile deaths or motor vehicle deaths based on so many different types of policy related to car safety, not just seatbelts, but so many other parts, airbags. And Bob was just telling me um, today as we were talking about this, um, that there's a particular kind of facial fracture that he was trained to treat and he no longer sees it anymore because of airbags. So it's just, you know, pretty much erased, which is amazing. And then we can look at cardiovascular de disease deaths, which have decreased over time. This is from, you know, the 50s all the way till 2015. Um, that's a little harder one to, to pinpoint exactly what was the change, but there were a lot of changes, right, in terms of diet. Um, and, and I won't say that diet is completely improved, you know, in many ways diet hasn't necessarily improved, but in some ways um, uh, uh, meat consumption is no longer as much saturated fat as before. Um, so there have been some improvements. Um, are, is there increased physical activity? I don't, maybe, yes, but also I sit at the desk all day, so there aren't as many people doing physical labor as there used to be. Um, uh, my, we joked, my, my grandmother raised uh, 10 children on a farm, and um, she lived to be 103, honestly, on an occasional Tylenol. She had no health problems. And she, when I became a dietitian, she said, so how long would I have lived if I'd eaten right? Ha, 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 you know, I'm like, <laughs> very funny. Very funny, Grandma. But, and truly, you know, they raised hogs. They had, you know, we, they ate all sorts of foods that are unhealthy, but I've never seen a harder working uh, group of people because of course you run the farm. Everybody's physically active all the time. Um, and they did not smoke for the most part. So decreased smoking, and then of course there are some medications for hypertension and so forth. So I don't know exactly what to make of the drop in cardiovascular disease, but I think there have been a lot of efforts in many fronts. And what about smoking? So there was a big increase in smoking um, from the 20s up into the 60s, and then a drop off. And this happened in the US, in Canada, in the UK, big change. And if you look at the next graph, you really see how that change happened. The per capita cigarette consumption in blue, followed by male lung cancer deaths. Same curve, pretty much, but delayed because of the delay in, you know, in how that, that um, affected cancer death rate. And then even with female lung cancer, because most you know, women were much less likely to um, smoke, but there was still some, somewhat of an effect. And then lastly, of course, I have to get one in about nutrition, and um, iodizing salt is an example, right? So this happened back in 1924, where it was realized worldwide iodine deficiency diseases were a big problem, um, including goiter, but other diseases too. Um, other problems related to iodine deficiency, and essentially showing that after the implementation of iodizing salt, there was a big drop. And we really don't see goiters in this country um, unless it's someone who's come from another country where they are not exposed. So back to what is public health. Public health takes care of the population, right? So this is where we get to taking care of everybody, right? Not just one person at a time, someone who has access to a smart doctor who can help them, but really thinking more population-wide, thinking about bigger groups of people at, at a time, and thinking about prevention in some ways, even as we talked about with, with iodine and with, and with car safety.
Um, so my question is, is, is public health and all of these efforts, is it supported by Christianity? Is this something that um, is connected? So, you know, I'm sure you all may have ideas about this. Father Craig may certainly have some ideas about this. So here are some thoughts that I had as I went through thinking about this, right? So if we look at one scripture, um, but so you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He then said to the paralytic, stand up, take your bed, and go to your home. And he stood up and went to his home. So an example of Jesus healing a paralytic man. And there are many examples of Jesus healing people in the Bible, right? Is that health? Is that public health? Or is that something else? Is that Jesus showing power? Is that Jesus explaining even a metaphorical kind of way? Uh, is that a metaphor for healing the soul? Or is that health? I think it's a little bit of everything. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe some of each. I don't know how directly that's really public health or not. Um, and then, of course, feeding the masses, right? Multiplying the loaves and fishes. I would love to believe that this is nutrition, right? <laughs> that this is Jesus saying, feed everyone, right? He ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass, taking the five loaves and the two fish. He looked up to heaven and blessed and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the crowd. It fed everyone. Father Craig, yes, sir? Ah, he was worried about their health, though, right? So he'd been, they'd been with him for three days, and he was worried that they would faint on their way home. Very interesting. But is it really telling us in the Bible to feed people? I don't know, right? I mean, it just seems like it's sort of a sideways example of Jesus feeding everyone by this miracle. So there's a little bit more direct instruction Feed my sheep. That's pretty straightforward, right? Feed my sheep. But is it feed my sheep actual food for the body or feed my sheep with spiritual food for the soul? I don't know. Peter might be able to tell us. <laughs> but it's, right? The, I, and of course, I love this passage because to me, it does speak to take care of people who are in need. But it's interesting, right? As you... It is? Because if you're feeding their bodies and helping, you're feeding and helping them physically, all right, then that's going to strengthen them in the connection of care is going to feed the soul. I love that. Right. And I've got to tell you at some point about another study I'm working on where really we're studying Meals on Wheels and how just being there showing up to provide a meal, just the act of showing up actually helps with health outcomes, not the food itself. If you provide food without the human contact, I love that. So there's even science to back that up, what you're, what you're saying, or we're, we're working on it anyway. As you go, proclaim the good news. The kingdom of heaven has come near, the good news, right? Cure the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, cast out demons. You received without payment, give without payment. That sounds like a direct order, not a metaphor. <laughs> that sounds a little bit more right to the point. Cure the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers. And, and it gets to this other point that I, I didn't cite too many um, scriptures, but the other point that Jesus specifically hung out with and took care of and uh, was in the company of people that many in society would not have been near. Cast off, mm, it's not good to be with them, those are not, they're not okay, they're not our people, they're not, you know, the lepers, the, you know, many, the, the lower people in society, um, so to speak. And that was, he, he, behave that way routinely. So that is definitely something that he did by his actions. Okay, and, whoops, one more. 
For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great God, mighty and awesome, who is not partial and takes no bribe, who executes justice for the orphan and the widow, and who loves the strangers, providing them with food and clothing. You shall also love the stranger, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. So this is also a little bit more specific. Take care of the people who are the more uh, the, the lower people in society, and at that time included orphans, widows, and strangers. So that is the end of my presentation, but I would love to hear more conversation and thoughts about what this means. Yes. Sorry, oh yes, a microphone. Yes, 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 thank you for saying that, because I would have forgotten all about it. Excellent. I think it's on. My question is how Ah, well, I will say um, the public health community is absolutely, um, uh, for, certainly believes that gun violence is a public health crisis. Um, the American Public Health Association has had gun violence as one of the top public health crises for as long as I've been a member, and that's been, well, it, it was about 20 years ago. And um, our success in uh, being able to get the attention of lawmakers has actually not been any better, unfortunately, than other folks, um, other advocates. But um, absolutely locally, as well as nationally, public health leaders um, are, are you know, as concerned about that type of injury as they would be about motor vehicle injury and other kinds of injuries and other kinds of reasons for, for injury and death. And so, yes, absolutely that is of concern. Unfortunately, it has been very difficult for um, the advocacy to be successful. Good question, though. Yes, Elizabeth. My So I agree with part of what you said, but maybe not the other part. My, as I mentioned, my father's family um, had a farm. They ate very well. Everything was fresh because it was grown right out there or my grandmother canned, you know, everything under the sun. Um, however, foodborne illness was also a very big deal. Um, and before preservatives were around, um, foodborne illness was definitely a cause of illness and a cause of death. So I don't think that the preservatives themselves are harmful and they've been around long enough that I think we would, we would have some, we, I know that there are studies that have looked at that. However, what I think has become detrimental in the food supply is the processing. And some of the processing has, you know, for example, the development of white flour was part of the reason why we had um, beriberi and pellagra because the processing took away the hull of the uh, germ um, uh, of the um, uh, uh, carbohydrates and, you know, the starch products. They took away where, where all the nutrients lived, right? So then we had to have enrichment 
of um, the uh, flower supply to add back those nutrients. And that didn't happen until the 20s and 30s when they figured out that that was a big problem. So there's no question, you know, then of course the other piece of it is so many different kinds of sugar and sweeteners and uh, many, many products that really are what we would call um, nutrient poor, right? They've got lots of carb and protein. They've got very little in the way of um, vitamins and minerals. And so you're missing out on so much of what you really need. Filling up on empty calories, that's what we mean by empty calories, right? So foods that have calories but have very little in the way of real nutritional um, value. And that's part of that transition, right, from, from scarcity to obesity, where we have so many people, because it's so easy to overeat. And frankly, that's the business model of a lot of companies, right? They want you to buy more than you need. They want you to eat more than you need, because it, you know, that's, that's part of what happens. So I agree with that. But there really hasn't been very good research on, uh, or very much at all that shows any detriment to the preservatives. Thankfully, those uh, aren't too bad. On the other hand, Elizabeth, I completely agree with eating as close to the source as possible, eating in season, if at all possible, both, both you mentioned. I think that's a really good idea. Sir? Yes. Oh, hey, Fran. So the question is, oh. <laughs> you can stand, that's okay. Well, I, I did go to two conferences. I will tell you, everybody wore a mask inside. I mean, it was like, we are truly the believers in terms of, you know, um, if I have it, I don't want to give it to somebody. I went to one of the conferences I went to in Baltimore. They reported to us five people at some point during the conference tested positive. None of them got it from each other and no one else got it from them. And that's why, because we all wore our masks and we all, you know, were tried to be really careful. Um, in terms of forecasting, I mean, it's not good. And I will tell you that 10 years ago, uh, in public health circles, 20 years ago, people said a pandemic is coming. I mean, this is going to happen. We are, I mean, it's sort of like the earthquake discussion, right? If you live in California, everybody's like, oh, we're overdue, it's not good. And, and you just get used to hearing that. Everybody just ignores it. Yeah, okay, we're overdue, so what's for dinner? You know, I mean, everybody just ignores that. Well, it's the same in public health infectious disease. A lot of people had said, it's gonna happen. It's gonna be bad. And we're all like, oh, that's scary. So, you know, I mean, what are you gonna do? And there, there have been a lot of, um, uh, uh, there have been a lot of meetings to talk about, and there was a lot of planning on how you uh, go about dealing with a pandemic if an infectious agent comes out, and really doing, you know, games and, and computer scenarios of, of how would we, you know, they, they call it, they game it out, right? Get, play it out um, and, and figure out how it's going to uh, travel and how you're going to stop it. And unfortunately, it just, they, what, what they had planned didn't end up getting implemented. Um, it kind of got tossed and um, it's difficult because, and I, I mean, I fully admit, it's a really hard thing to tell people you have to stay home, to tell people you have to, you know, not see your family. Um, you can't see your, your elderly family that's in, in uh, institutionalized settings. I, I went through the same thing with, with my father um, uh, in that kind of a setting. It's a really awful thing to go through, and it was difficult. I think what um, what really wasn't planned for um, was the blowback when there was a downturn in the economy, and it was it just became very difficult. So I think the plans are there, and we have to just think about the reality of implementing that, and reality of how people are going to react, and the reality of getting the message out. I mean, even now, I will say. I, I know people who test positive and think it's not a big deal and think that they can be around. I'm like, mm, you know, <laughs> if you're positive, please stay home. Please wear a mask. Please don't go near your elderly family members. It's really still not a good idea, even if they're vaccinated. It's not, you know, risk is lower. It's not zero. 
it's, it's lower. So I, I think it's hard, and I don't think that this is over, and I don't think other, you know, it's still possible. I mean, they're talking about monkeypox, which is considerably less risky in terms of the number of the number of people who have it, the number of cases, the number, you know, and how it's spreading and so forth, it's considerably less risky, also because a lot of us who got the smallpox vaccine have essentially already been vaccinated for it, which is, which is great. So we're already in a completely different situation. But that won't be the last infectious disease. So how are we going to react to the next one? And are we going to be willing to you know, do these same things that they did for smallpox, right? Identify, isolate, vaccinate, and so forth. And um, it, it's hard. And that's where, honestly, my end of public health, which is more the communications piece, how do you talk to people about it? How do you convince people to behave in a certain way is more important than, well, or at least as important than the laboratory work. You know, I don't know that. I don't know that for sure. Um, that is not my area, so I couldn't say for sure um, if that's the case. Do you know, Bob, anything about this? So the question is, is there more crossover from animals to humans now than there was um, historically? Crow crowding makes a big difference. Um, contact makes a big difference, but I haven't seen actual data on that that show that it, it is an in increase. Um, there are many similarities. I did not bring data on that that I can show you, um, but also the virus is different. Um, and, you know, we've had many new variants in rapid succession. I'm not sure that that happened with um, the flu of uh, 1918, the Spanish flu, or um, if they even had the technology to really identify the variants that quickly. Um, but it was essentially the same. Find a vaccine and mask everybody. And there was also a lot of pushback of people didn't want to wear masks. And, you know, there, it was not all that different in that way. But, um, uh, of course, the amount of care available if people got very badly sick was also drastically different. Um, and, and that's some of what has been the concern with this one is just not overwhelming the system so that people couldn't get care. But we, we probably all seen on the news that there have been situations where um, uh, there were so many cases and so many very sick people that they really couldn't get um, enough care to everybody. So it's hard to say. Um, I think the circumstances are so very different. Um, the population level is very different. Um, but, uh, but like I said, there are many, many similarities between them. Jerry, yeah. Uh, I like how you see a very big organization. And as a member of the community, how best can members of the community interface or take advantage of the knowledge base? What is the easiest way to, to do that? And, and how does the public health organization work to facilitate that? Yeah. I think this is our biggest downfall. And honestly, uh, this is back when, when vitamin A was first discovered. Um, <coughs> uh, Evie McCollum, who identified it, wrote an article in Red Book magazine to get the information out to women. That's what we, we need information translated for regular people, not in stupid, not in language to dumb it down and make it seem, you know, not, not to be insulting but to get the information out on a regular basis. And I think this has been the biggest downfall of this pandemic through, and I'm not talking politically, I'm talking every administration, everybody has really done poorly in having good messaging and even targeting the messaging to different populations that might need to hear it differently, you know, both in language and in, you know, for, for teens make, you know, TikTok videos that really tell the story, right? So there are ways to communicate differently to different people, and we have done a terrible job of it. With that said, 
Rhode Island Department of Health has excellent materials. You may not have seen any of them, but they have great materials, right? Why haven't you seen any of them? The CDC, also excellent, excellent materials, and I am happy to send them to Father Craig to get them out to everybody here. Um, but I will say, you know, it, that is a huge frustration. That's what I teach. Actually, the class that I teach is design um, and evaluation of public health interventions. So everything from how do you get people to floss their teeth? How do you get people to, you know, eat fewer hamburgers or whatever the case may be? Um, and it's really identifying what concerns they may have and addressing them and then getting the information out on a regular basis. But you're, you're totally right, Jerry. They're not readily available, but they should be. And they're, you know, that's just, a, a, a bad thing that we did. Elizabeth? Yeah. Well, I have two statements um, and questions. Um, number one, we saw where smoking was, when we talked about public health, we saw where smoking was out there. But now, we're hearing more and more about making it legal to smoke marijuana. Mm -hmm. Why would we even want to do that? Yeah. Okay. First question, mar marijuana. Um, so it's a good question. It's a really good question. And I am actually working on a project right now um, for uh, regarding marijuana use among pregnant women because the way people talk about it, it's natural. It's, it's you know, it's, it, there's nothing wrong with it. It's, public health messaging has been terrible on that. Just because it's legal and you don't need to be thrown in jail for having some doesn't mean you should necessarily uh, consume it, right? And there, you're still smoking if you use the smoke version. I mean, there are many other versions of it, right? But many pregnant women don't know it's actually highly toxic to a fetus. So it is really, really dangerous for a pregnant woman to be exposed. Um, and if it's toxic to a fetus, how is it as a secondhand effluent, which I, I like to run, right? That's my, my, my physical activity. When I run in the morning, when it's time for the high school kids to head to school, um, I'm choking on the way. I'm smelling it like every other car, maybe every car. Um, I mean, it's just a big fog of marijuana on the way to the high school. I'm, I'm not kidding. I mean, it's absolutely there. So who's telling the kids what are the health effects of smoking? It's not funny. It's not, you know, it, 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 it's arguably, um, uh, it may be very harmful. I don't think it's the gateway drug to other drugs that people talk about. I don't think it's that kind of harmful. But is there toxicity? Where's the public health messaging on that? And I don't think it's, I don't think it's very good. Um, I don't think it's really balancing, because the whole idea of making it legal, I personally think was a good idea. Legal and yet tell people why it may not be a good idea. And in many cases, it's not a good idea. So, um, you know, there are some good uses of marijuana. Medi medical marijuana is a real thing. There are different products, you know, CBD that, you know, there are other products that may be very, very useful. But where's the messaging on that? And I, I don't think it's very good. Yeah, right. Why put something in your lungs? Right, exactly. Why put something in your lungs? It seems like that would be bad. Well, is it fine? I don't know if it's fine. <laughs> you know? Barbara, yeah. There's very excellent research that it is not a gateway drug. It does not lead to consumption of other things. There's excellent research that that is not, it, if it's harmful, it's harmful in and of itself. Under certain circumstances, it does not lead to using other drugs. <laughs> that I can be comfortable with. Well, it's also a very different infectious disease. And so it could be isolated. If we had treated COVID when we had five cases in this country, if we had treated it like smallpox, it might have been able to be eradicated then. But even then, 
we have hundreds, thousands of flights coming in a day. How long can we keep it, you know? So the amount of travel right now makes it really, really hard. In 1978, it was a much easier thing to do. But if you can keep whole communities um, completely um, isolated from the infection, and then if one person gets it, be right on that um, and, and, and treat it, that's how you're supposed to eradicate an infectious disease. I think the transmissibility was higher in this, and then the travel just made it really difficult. Thank you so much for Absolutely. this wonderful hour with you, and thank you everyone for being here. And great um, questions.